Amen. Thank you, ladies, for helping us to worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and we're in chapter 22. If you haven't been with us, we're in the midst of a sermon series on the life of Abraham that we have entitled, Finding Faith in a Fallen World. Now, you may be surprised that we're staying in our sermon series on the life of Abraham when we get to Easter Sunday. But I think you're going to find that this account from the life of Abraham actually points us to Easter Sunday. And so I want to look at this very powerful story from the life of Abraham this morning in Genesis 22. And I want to preach a little differently than I typically do. If you're not always with us, I should tell you that typically I would have three principles that I've pulled from the text. Usually sermons have three points to them. And I announce those and then show you in the text where those things are found in God's Word. And that's typically how a sermon goes. But this account from the life of Abraham is so powerful and poignant. It is so perplexing and provocative that I just want to walk through it verse by verse. And I'll make some observations and some commentary. And of course, at the end, we'll talk about what our takeaways should be from the story. But I just want to let the scripture speak to us. And I want to just walk through it verse by verse together today. So let me pray for us that God would give us understanding of his word. And then we'll just wade in and walk through this together. So let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it these many years. And surely one of the reasons you have preserved it, lo, this many millennia, is so that it might make a difference in your people's lives. And so, Father, we open our hearts to you. I pray that you would open our ears and our minds and give us great understanding of the words that you inspired through your prophet Moses, and that you would be our teacher today, and that you would use this word and this account of history to grow our faith in you, that we might trust in you to provide so that we might live. And Father, as always, I ask you to do all these things, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 22. Let's look at the first two verses together. Hear now God's word. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, just let's just stop right there. This is crazy to think that God would make this request from one of his people. I mean, it's shocking. It's wrong on so many levels. Think about it with me. First, murder is wrong, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment. Given to us in Exodus 20, down around verse 13, we're told, God himself said, thou shalt not murder. How can he give this command? And you may say to yourself, well, this is only in Genesis, right? The Ten Commandments haven't been given yet, but God has made it clear to his people that we're not to murder. 
when Noah got off the ark. Remember Genesis 9, uh, verses 5 and 6 there. God said, and from each man to I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. God said when Noah got off the ark that human lives are so precious because each human is made in the image of God that we're not to take life in this way. So how can God now command Abraham to take the life of his only son. I wouldn't give up on the Exodus passage just yet though, because if you think about the original audience, who's writing these words down? The prophet Moses, and who is hearing these things for the first time? The Exodus generation, those folks who have just come out of Egypt, and they're in the desert being tested by God in the wilderness because they had not been obedient to take the promised land like they should have. And verse 1 here says that Abraham is being tested and the original audience is in the, uh, in the wilderness being tested. So this is to teach them something about God. But think about how they would hear this story. It's shocking to us. But think about what they have just come from and think about where they are going. The Exodus generation has just come from Egypt. And what happened while they were in Egypt? Remember they began to become numerous and the Pharaoh began to be concerned that they could join with a foreign power and overthrow Pharaoh. So what did Pharaoh command the midwives to do? He said, you should kill the Hebrew sons. Toss them in the Nile River. Kill them. If it's a girl, let her live. If it's a boy, you should kill him. So many of these people coming out have lost sons already to Pharaoh. They've lost sons. Maybe they still carry that wound and that burden. And then they hear this story that God has commanded Abraham to sacrifice his own son. That's what they've just come out of and hated it. And where is it that they're going? God is sending them to take the land of Canaan, which is inhabited by the Canaanites. And one of the reasons God says the Canaanites deserve to be judged and pushed out of their land is because they sacrificed their children to their pagan gods. And God says that he detests that, and that's why he's going to drive them out of the land. Yet, here he is commanding Abraham to sacrifice his own son as a burnt sacrifice to God. It makes no sense. And think about who this is that God is asking Abraham to sacrifice. It's Isaac. It's the child of the promise. If you've been with us in this sermon series, we met Abraham back in Genesis 11. And in Genesis 12, God called him when he was 75 years old to leave the place where he was, to leave his family, and to leave all that he had ever known for 75 years, and to go to a place that God would show him. And God told him, if you go to this promised land, I'll bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. I'll make your name great. And through your descendant, all nations of the world will be blessed. And Abraham was obedient. And he went. 
And he has been blessed by God. And these folks hearing this story know his name is great because they remember him 400 years later. Yet Isaac, the child, this is the one through whom all the nations are to be blessed. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years to have this child. They didn't have Isaac until Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90. And in this miraculous turn of events, after going through all the trials that they went through that you know about if you've been with us in this sermon series, they finally have Isaac, the child of the promise, the one that God promised to bless all nations through the descendants of Abraham. Yet God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, to kill him on an altar? Has God changed his mind about his covenant promises? Abraham had given up his past for God. And now it seems as though God is calling him to give up even his future. I doubt Abraham slept at all that night. He had to be thinking, okay, has God really spoken? Did God really speak these things to me or was it just a bad dream? If God has spoken, did I get the message right? Did I hear it right? This, this doesn't make sense. How could God ask this of me? If you were with us in Genesis 18, you may recall that God shared with Abraham his plan to destroy the city of Sodom because of their great sin. And you may remember that Abraham intercedes for Sodom and says, look, if there are 50 righteous people there, will you spare the city? If there are 45, if there are 40, if there are 30, if there are 10. And Abraham interceded for Sodom with God. Oh, how he must have interceded for his own son. Surely he didn't sleep a wink that night. Let's pick up with the text in verse 3. We read there, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Verse 3 says, early the next morning he got up. Well, I guess he did. I'm sure he tossed and turned all night, bargaining with God, crying out to God, but finally, when it was light enough, Abraham got up and cut the wood that they would need. Now, listen, maybe I'm just a really petty person, okay? I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, if God asked me to do this, I would be like, are you kidding me? You're asking me to sacrifice my own son, and I've got to cut the wood for it and carry it? I mean, come on, if I'm willing to sacrifice, can't you just have the wood there, already there when we get there and set up? I mean, i got to cut the wood and carry it all the way to wherever we're going. Yet Abraham, his obedience is unbelievable. Abraham trusts God. Even when God's request is not making a whole lot of sense. Abraham is trusting God even in that situation. Even as he cries out to him, I'm sure, asking him to do something different, he still walks in God's ways. Look at verse 4. 
on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the... I'm sorry, i got to stop again. The third day, why make the man go three days and travel for three days from where he already was? That seems so cruel to me. Why would he have to travel three days and wait and agonize? I imagine when they camped at night, the servants going to sleep and Isaac going to sleep and and Abraham again crying out to God, bargaining with God, not sleeping, not eating, pleading with God for his only son. Verse 5. So they've seen the place where they're going to go. They see it in the distance. Verse 5. Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. (laughs) We? First person, plural. We will go over there and worship and have this burnt offering and then we, both of us, will come back? Is this just a lie? To keep Isaac and the servants cooperating? Or does Abraham really believe what he says that we will go over there and then we will return? What's going on? Is Abraham just taking the boy away from the servants so there are no witnesses to what happened? What is it that Abraham is thinking when he says we will go over there and worship and then we We'll come back. Let's keep going in the text. Look at verses 6 and 7. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And Abraham himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb For the burnt offering. Isaac's old enough to put two and two together. He's old enough to know what's going on. Presumably he has seen his father worship God with a burnt sacrifice before. Maybe he's participated in those ceremonies of worship before. And so he's looking, he's saying, okay, you've got a torch with the fire, you have a knife, we have the wood, where's the lamb to be sacrificed? Oh, how that question must have pierced Abraham's heart. He's been agonizing over it for days, crying out to God. What do you say when your own son asks this question? I believe it's instructive for us. What do we say to our own kids when they ask about things God is doing that we don't fully understand ourselves? When God's doing things that we're not even sure we really agree with ourselves. How do we respond to our kids? Listen, parents, we should be talking to our kids about what is going on in the world and God's role in it. We should be talking about how God is at work in his world. 
And I promise you, if you talk to your kids long enough and they grow big enough, they're going to ask a question you don't know the answer to. It's going to happen. What do we say in that kind of a situation? Even if you don't have kids, what do you say to other people? What do you say to a watching world, to coworkers, to neighbors, to family members? What do you say to people when they ask you something about God and, and you don't know? You don't understand. Maybe you're not even sure you agree with what God is doing. Abraham gives a great answer here that is instructive for us. Let's look at it together. Genesis 22 and verse 8. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Abraham says, God will provide. Is this another lie? Or does Abraham really believe God will provide? Is Abraham just postponing the painful truth for Isaac as long as possible? Well, we don't have to guess what Abraham was thinking. Because in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that great hall of fame of faith, we're told what Abraham was thinking. In Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Look at verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So what was Abraham thinking? Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham reasoned. Don't run past that. He reasoned that God could raise the dead. But, but, but notice that Abraham reasoned. And we're told this in Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of fame of faith that explains, that begins with the definition of what faith is. And we're told that Abraham reasoned. Listen to me, friends. Do not think that faith means that we don't reason and use our minds. Don't think that if you're a person of faith that you don't use reason. Clearly here, Abraham reasoned. Faith certainly requires more than reason, but it does not require less. And faith and reason are certainly not at odds with one another. Because Abraham, the man of great faith, reasoned. And what did he reason? Abraham reasoned that God can raise the dead. Abraham's thinking, well, if God created all things, if he's the one that breathes life into people, if God's the one who created all things just by the power of his word, he spoke it and it came into existence. God had, Abraham had seen God over and over again open wombs and create life or close wombs and prevent life from taking place. He had seen God preserve him as he went and saved Lot. And so he reasoned that God could raise the dead, that even if he sacrificed his son, that God could bring him back from the dead. So what Abraham is saying to his son when he says God will provide, 
Abraham is saying, God will answer your question. God himself will provide. Abraham is saying, in this situation, I don't know what God is doing, but I know that God is good. I know that he's faithful. I know he's powerful. And I know that God will provide. That's how we answer our kids when we don't know the answer to their question. We say, I don't know. <laughs> Let's wait on God to provide the answer. Do we model that kind of faith for our kids? Do we model that kind of faith to a watching world? Listen, folks. It is not that we have all the answers because we don't. And it is not that we know all about the future because we don't. But what we do know as the people of God is we know our God. And we know that he's good. And we know that he's faithful. And we know that he's all-powerful. And we know that he's been so faithful to provide for so many people. He's been faithful even to those people of his when they were unfaithful. He's provided for so many broken and messed up people like Abraham and like Sarah and like you and like me. And so while we don't have the exact answer, we may not even understand, we may not even agree with what we think God's doing we can say with confidence, I know God, and I know his character, and we will wait on him to provide. Oh, the waiting is hard. That's the hard part. But God will provide for his people. Look at verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it, he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He bound Isaac. That means he tied him up. Why would he do that? Because that's what you do with a sacrifice. You tie the sacrifice up so they don't wander off of the altar. So that you can plunge the knife into them without them moving. So that they stay there in the midst of the fire and are consumed by the fire. That's why you tie someone up. But it's so interesting in this situation. Because if you read the text carefully looking at the details, I think Isaac could have stopped this from happening. Abraham was over 110 years old at this point in time and Isaac is at least in his teens. And if you look back at verse 6, who was it that carried the heavier load up the mountain? Isaac is the one who carries the wood on his back. Abraham's just carrying a torch and a knife. Isaac presumably is the one that is more physically fit. He's the one that carried the heavier load. And the implication of that is that Isaac must have willingly submitted at least to his earthly father, right? Because, I mean, Isaac was the stronger one. He could have said, I'm not doing it, old man. You get up there, right? But Isaac submitted at least to his earthly father. 
And perhaps to his heavenly father, if he knew how these burnt sacrifices had worked, he was a teenager, he was certainly old enough to know about God and God's ways. He had heard the stories. He knew what a burnt sacrifice was. He had worshipped with his parents before. And so he has faith, at least in his earthly father, perhaps in his heavenly father as well. We see amazing faith in these two men. So Abraham binds Isaac and puts him on the altar. Look at verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham is really going to do it. Because Abraham really believes that God can put it all back together again. I don't know what your reaction is to this story. I find it disturbing, unsettling. I told you at the beginning it was puzzling, it was provocative. I don't know how you respond. But I think it begs the question, we all need to think, do we have that kind of faith that Abraham had? I mean, if you think about when all we've ever wanted and all we've ever worked for for so long is slashed and burned before our very eyes as it, and, and is in ashes, with nothing left, do we believe God can put it back together again? Do we believe God would put it back together again? What an incredibly powerful, yet painful display of faith. Well, let's hurry and get to verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Oh, how Abraham must have wept tears of joy. The text doesn't tell us exactly what Abraham did, but his prayers have been answered. I imagine at least the first thing I would do would be to untie my child, to apologize profusely, to hug him, to say, you heard the the angel of the Lord call from heaven. You heard this was something God had directed me to do. To reassure my child, listen, I believed what I was saying when I said we will go and worship and we will come back. I believed what I was saying when I said God will provide because I know God and I know what he is like and I've trusted him even to the point that he can raise the dead and put things back together again when there seems to be no human way possible because I've seen him do it before and I knew that he could do it again. Abraham obeyed God even when it was hard. Even when he didn't fully understand. Even when it didn't make sense. I wonder, do our kids see our obedience to God even when it's hard? 
even when we don't understand. But we're just trusting God because we know he has proven himself to be good and faithful and powerful and that he will provide. Is there a watching world that sees us obey God in that way? Knowing that God is good and he's faithful and he's powerful and that he provides, knowing those things should lead us to trust God even when it's hard, even when we don't understand. Because God has provided over and over again in the past and it means that we can trust him in the future. It means that you can trust God with your future. And this account in Genesis 22 is one of those times God did provide. Look at verses 13 and 14. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The Lord did provide. Isaac had asked, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham had answered in faith, God will provide. And instead of Abraham's son, God provided a ram. So we see that God provides so his people may live. What else do we learn from this account? What would be our other takeaways? Typically, when we read this account, we tend to associate and identify ourselves with Abraham, don't we? We put ourselves in Abraham's place, and we think of the excruciating choice that he had to make, and we ask ourselves, do I have faith like Abraham had? We've certainly been reading the story that way, And that application is a perfectly acceptable application. The New Testament calls us to consider the faith of Abraham and to exercise that kind of faith. So that's an appropriate way to read this story. How about Isaac? Isaac we usually associate with Jesus, and this is what points us to the Easter story, right? I hear guys preach it that way. They say, Isaac climbed up a hill with wood on his back, in willing submission to his father, even to the point of death. And Jesus climbed up a hill, Golgotha, with wood on his back, the cross, and willingly submitted to his father, even to the point of death. And I suppose Isaac does point us to Jesus and to the Easter story. But there's one huge difference if you think about it. Isaac did not die. But Jesus did. Jesus did die. What God initially asked our father Abraham to do before God stopped him, God our father actually did when he gave his one and only son, and no one stopped him. We were talking about this story before uh, during worship practice, and Josh Lambert said to me, he said, you know, I just look at Abraham, and I'm just like, I couldn't do that. 
I was like, I know what you mean. I love all y'all, but if it comes to y'all and one of my kids, I'm sorry, y'all are gone. <laughs> I'm going to save my kids. And he said, well, of course that's what you would do. And we said, that's the point of the story. We recoil in horror that we'd be asked to sacrifice our own child. And most of us, when it comes down to it, would not do that. And the whole point of the story is, God did. That that is what he did for you. That that is what he did for me. That he was willing to sacrifice his own son. You see, Isaac is not a picture of Jesus as much as the ram caught in the thicket is a picture of Jesus. So who's Isaac in this story? <laughs> you are Isaac. I am Isaac. We are the ones who willingly submit to our heavenly father, who trust him to do what is right. We're the ones who live only by the grace of God who provides a way for us to live. This narrative moves us to gratitude for the Lord's grace and providing a substitute for us so that we can live. The ram was provided by God to be a substitute. He was provided by God to be a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. The text in verse 13 says he provided him instead of his son. That in the place of, instead of, that's an important concept in the Bible. Think of the original audience. They had just come out of Egypt in the Exodus. They had just celebrated the Passover meal. And the Passover lamb had been slain for every firstborn in their place so that the angel of death would pass over and they could live. When the people of God entered the promised land, animals were sacrificed for the people of God in their place to pay for their sins so that the people of God could live. By the way, just one little nugget. I can't help but chase this rabbit. Do you know where the sacrifices took place when they entered the promised land? Well, in Jerusalem. Well, yes, in Jerusalem, but where in Jerusalem? Well, at the temple. Of course, at the temple. Do you know where the temple was built? 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, look it up later. Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah where Abraham had taken Isaac to be sacrificed. Where verse 14 says, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. I don't know about you, that's crazy to me. That 1,500 years before the temple is built... God gives this picture of what will happen there. And it reminds us that when we don't understand what God, why the three-day trip? What is God doing with that? It may, God might be setting up something that he's not going to do for a thousand years. He's so much bigger than we are. His ways are higher than our ways. Oh, so that's why Abraham had to travel the three days. And of course, the biggest in our place that ever took place was in the fullness of time. The Lord provided the Lamb of God who died in our place so that we may live. That's how Genesis 22 points us to Easter. Because it introduces us to a God who so loved the world 
that when we would not be willing to, he gave his son, his only son whom he loved, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Jesus died for us because God still provides so that his people may live. This event from history recorded in Genesis 22 reassures us that the Lord provides so his people may live. That means we can trust God to provide for us today. So I call on all of us to trust in him, to live your life connected to him, to let all you have and all you are revolve around him, to trust him with all you have and all you are because he has shown himself to be totally trustworthy. I ask you, along with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray and thank him for his provision. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you provide so that we may live. Thank you for reassuring us with story after story about how you have provided for so many broken and messed up people like us. I pray that you would give us faith to see that and to believe in you and to walk in your ways, to totally trust you with all that we have and all that we are. Father, we can't do that on our own. We ask that you would come and give us the gift of faith, that you would allow us to trust in you, that you would enable us to walk in your ways. And as we come to your table today, I pray that you would enable us to do just that. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.